Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Laura Ziegler in for Nomeen Ujiadeen. Today is Wednesday, June 1st. Coming up, we tend to think of the Stonewall Uprising as the beginning of the gay rights movement, but in fact, it was the result of years of quiet work by Kansas City activists like Drew Schaefer. There's no way to have Stonewall become sort of like this national fulcrum and spark point without the work that Drew did. Plus, a look at how the lead industry used racial bias to distract public attention from the dangers of lead poisoning. But first, some headlines. New details are emerging about a Kansas City police shooting of an African-American woman in the parking lot of a family dollar. KCUR's Luke Martin reports the Missouri State Highway Patrol is investigating. Claims that the woman was unarmed and pregnant are dubious at best, says the Highway Patrol's Sergeant Andy Bell. We know definitively, 100 percent, She had a gun. She had a handgun in her hand during this encounter. Bell says his agency also suspects the woman was not pregnant, though that information is protected by patient-doctor privacy laws. KCPD shot the woman May 27th. Bell says they wanted to question her and another person about the car they were in being reported stolen. The Highway Patrol investigates all shootings involving KCPD officers. Bell says investigations can take months. A fire broke out at a popular Westport bar and music venue on Tuesday. KCUR's Frank Morris with that story. Buzzard Beach is a staple of the Westport Entertainment District. Been there for decades, but for a while Tuesday morning, it looked like the venerable bar and possibly the buildings next door might go up in flames. Assistant Fire Chief Jimmy Walker says that when firefighters showed up around 10.30 a.m., smoke was billowing and flames were leaping out of the top of the business, and those on either side were in trouble. We were able to get in there quickly and uh, control it and knock it down and then check the exposure businesses to make sure it didn't spread. Walker says the fire did a lot of damage to the main floor of Buzzard Beach, but didn't touch the other businesses. No one was injured, the bar's owners pledging to reopen it. While COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths in the metro remain low, Children's Mercy Hospital is taking steps to limit the spread of coronavirus among patients and staff. The hospital has updated its guidelines to include mask wearing by staff in non-clinical areas. It's also asking visitors to wear masks in the hospital. Dr. Angela Meyer said the hospital took these steps after a rise in positive cases and after 60 staff members called in sick with the infection. We're also seeing an increase in patients. That's the 10%. 10% of the tests we did in the past week were positive, which is a big increase from where we had been a month ago at around 2%. Across the metro, hospitalizations are down 25%. Deaths remain low, but doctors are continuing to monitor the spread of the BA2 variant. According to the Mid-America Regional Council, there were 372 reported COVID cases in the Kansas City area on Tuesday. And opioid deaths in Kansas have skyrocketed in recent years, as Blaze Mesa of the Kansas News Service reports, tracking drug deaths may not be enough to monitor the problem. Knowing the number of people who died from opioids is an important statistic. But Francis McGaffey with the Pew Charitable Trusts says states also need to track things like what medication people are taking and for how long. Overdose deaths tell us the severity of the opioid crisis but they don't tell us how to prevent those deaths in the first place. 
Kentucky, for instance, recently looked at what medication people were taking and realized that not enough people had access to treatment. Kentucky is working to reduce barriers to medication, McAfee says, which is an issue the state would not have discovered without richer data. Today kicks off LGBTQ Pride Month. But how many people know about the activist who started Kansas City's first gay rights organization in 1966? From the KCUR Studios podcast, A People's History of Kansas City, Mackenzie Martin brings us the story of Drew Schaefer. People like to credit the Stonewall Uprising in New York City as the beginning of the American gay rights movement. But gay rights organizing had actually been going on for decades by the time the Stonewall Inn was raided by police in June 1969, including here in Kansas City. Back then, gay rights groups were known as the homophile movement. And in 1966, the groups held their first national meeting here because, as gay rights activist Frank Kemeny put it, We set it for February 66 in Kansas City, because Kansas City was equally uh, inaccessible to all the organizations that then existed. Equally inaccessible, unless your name was Drew Schaefer. Drew started Kansas City's first gay rights organization, the Phoenix Society for Individual Freedom, joining a roster of national groups like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis. I think he was just a very outgoing sort of social guy. Stuart Hines is the co-founder of the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America and a curator of a traveling exhibit about Kansas City's early gay rights history, coming to the Kansas City Public Library this Saturday. Between laws banning same-sex relations and workplace discrimination, the 1960s was a scary time to be gay. But to put it in perspective, Stuart says, the environment in Kansas City wasn't the same as in, say, New York. Here, it wasn't nearly as oppressive. There was a pretty friendly relationship between the bars and the authorities. The Phoenix Society's headquarters, a.k.a. Drew Schaefer's house, was located on Linwood Boulevard in Kansas City's Gay Bar District. Thank you, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, here I am again, Ray Bourbon, for some more fun for your night. Like many homophile groups at the time, the Phoenix printed its own magazine, which served as a newsletter for Kansas City's gay community. It's in the pages of these magazines that debates within the community start to take place. Kansas City historian Kevin Charlow says the Phoenix was the first LGBTQ magazine in the whole Midwest. A lot of their early stuff is like writings on what it's like to be gay in Kansas City. You kind of sense it that it's like They're pouring out things that everyone has gone through. Some of it just looks like art. But then you flip the page. And there's an article on why gay people shouldn't be kicked out of the military. And you start to see them crop up in Iowa, in Nebraska. And all of a sudden, this little tiny group in Kansas City is making a a little bit wider impact. And it's getting bigger and bigger. And Drew didn't stop at the Midwest. He was convinced that in order to succeed, the national homophile movement needed two things. One, better communication, and two, an actual support network. So he tasked himself and the Phoenix with printing and mailing all of the homophile magazines and newsletters in the entire country. In the days before computer, that's a ton of work. For years, Stewart says Kansas City was essentially the information hub for the entire movement powered by dozens of volunteers and a printing press in Drew Schaefer's basement. It was ambitious, but it worked. 
because it was this network that helped set up the gay liberation movement of the 1970s. There's no way to have Stonewall become sort of like this national fulcrum and spark point without the work that Drew did, without the ability to connect all these disparate local groups and make a rallying cry in one city, the rallying cry of the gay rights movement nationally. Drew Schaefer died in 1989, and though few people today remember him, he helped give a voice to a community that didn't have one, in Kansas City and beyond. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Mackenzie Martin. Archival audio in this feature thanks to the Making Gay History podcast. Hear more about how Kansas City blazed a trail for gay liberation on the new episode of the podcast, A People's History of Kansas City. Go to kcur.org slash peopleshistory or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Lead is a dangerous neurotoxin, and researchers have known this for decades. But the substance stuck around in everyday products like paint and gasoline for years. The Midwest Newsroom's Niara Savage spoke with John Jay College historian and professor Gerald Markowitz about how the lead industry used racial bias to divert the public's attention away from the risks of the toxin. Savage began by asking Markowitz about the Lead Industry Association's public relations campaign. Well, the Lead Industries Association was the trade association for various uh, lead companies. They could be lead mining companies, they could be lead smelter companies, they could be lead pigment uh, manufacturers. And the reports that were started coming out in the 19-teens and 1920s about lead um, uh, poisoning of children Uh, was of great concern to the Lead Industries Association because it could, of course, affect its sales. In your book, Deceit and Denial, you and co-author David Rosner talk about the way the lead industry manipulated the public's idea of who was at risk of lead poisoning. How did they do it and how did they get away with it? Well, the way the Lead Industries Association um, was able to manipulate the perception of lead poisoning was that they defined it as a problem of um, what they called slums, that is, uh, uh, inner cities where the housing was uh, deteriorating and primarily children of color were being exposed to um, flaking lead um, off of the walls and ceilings. It seems like the 1957 Lead Industries Association's annual meeting was an important moment in the framing of the narrative about lead. What happened there? At that meeting, uh, the Lead Industries Association uh, director, uh, Manfred Bowditch, defined lead poisoning as a problem of slums and, again, these are his words, ineducable parents. Um, In a private letter, he made clear who he meant by ineducable parents. He was talking there, in his words, again, as Negro and Puerto Rican uh, parents. And so he was, in that meeting, really blaming the victims He was blaming the uh, parents of children for not preventing lead poisoning. 
What role did the NAACP, the Black Panthers, and other activist groups play in calling out racial disparities and lead exposure, and how did that contribute to the emergence of the concept of environmental racism? The um, civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was really crucial to the development of an understanding of lead poisoning as an environmental justice and environmental racism uh, issue. The Black Panthers and the Young Lords specifically made lead poisoning an issue of uh, poverty, an issue of racism that the society had uh, neglected and that the society had um, not addressed. And so they really um, performed an incredible service to society as a whole because uh, lead was eventually eliminated from uh, gasoline. Lead was eventually eliminated from paint. And um, the lead levels of children all across the country um, were dramatically reduced. That was historian Gerald Markowitz speaking with the Midwest Newsroom's Niara Savage. This reporting is part of an investigative project with the Missouri Independent called Unleaded that examines lead poisoning in Midwestern children. And this is Kansas City Today. I'm Laura Ziegler. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. Your regular host, Nomeen Ujiadine, will be back tomorrow. Meanwhile, stay up to speed on daily news across Kansas City at kcur.org, where you'll find the latest in news, information, and culture. Thanks for listening. Come back tomorrow. Tomorrow.